Well, good morning, <clears throat> and happy Sabbath again. <clears throat> so, we will be continuing through our study in the book of First Peter, and then we'll be done for the, the morning with Advent Hope. <clears throat> so, we are in First Peter chapter 3 now. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and begin with a, a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We pray as we study from the book of 1 Peter that you would give us further insight into the power of your word. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we got through the first 10 verses of 1 Peter chapter 3 last week, and we have covered several ideas in this book so far. The first chapter talks about how we've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification and obedience to an inheritance that's incorruptible. And then we talked about how we have the trials of our faith that's more and that our faith is more precious than gold tried with fire. And towards the end of chapter 1, it talks about being born again of incorruptible seed, that human flesh is like grass that withereth when the sun beats down upon it. And yet, those who are born again when the trials come are like incorruptible seed who fade not away. Chapter 2 then gets into a discussion of what it means to be born again. And it starts off by talking about how as newborn babes we desire the sincere milk of the word. And then we grow from that. And eventually it talks about how we are um, living stones built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is the foundation or chief cornerstone. And then as we continue on, the question may be, well, how can I be born again? And how is it possible that I wither not or fade not when the trials of life come. And the illustration is given of Jesus Christ in verses 20 through 25 and the experience that he went through when he was on trial, his trial and his crucifixion. And in verse 21, it tells us that he leaves us an example that we should follow his steps who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And then it talks about his death on the cross. And so that's the example that Christ has left for us that we should follow in his steps. This is what it means to be born again of incorruptible seed. And then Peter gets into some illustrations of, you know, in what way will we be tried or tested so that <clears throat> when we do the right thing, we get falsely accused for it, and yet we're called to have the example of Christ. The first illustration he gives are um, wives who are married to husbands that are not Christian. They are not of the Christian faith, and they may mistreat you, but your duty as a Christian is to respond the way Christ would. So that's his first example that he gives. And he says, you're not going to win them, you know, by the adornment and that kind of thing, but by a meek and quiet spirit. And then he's going to get into some il other illustrations now that we're going to pick it up here 
in verse 11. So that's kind of where we've gone so far in, in the book of 1 Peter. So picking up in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So it's interesting. Um, we've talked about being falsely accused. Um, and in verse 9 of this chapter, it talks about not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. And in verse 11, it says, eschew evil or turn away from evil, do good and seek peace. And it's like, okay, maybe you're being falsely accused. Maybe you feel like you're being misunderstood, but nonetheless, seek peace. And in verse 12, it says, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Now, who are the righteous? Based on this context, it's those who eschew evil, do good, seek peace, and ensue it instead of fighting back. That's one biblical definition for being righteous. And it says, his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, this is interesting. Um, just earlier in this passage, it says, look, in verse 9, it says, don't render evil for evil. So it's like, if you're fighting back, if you're being falsely accused and you're fighting back in the same spirit, that's considered doing evil. And the Bible says the face, is, uh, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So, not only has First Peter said, look, follow the example of Christ. When he was falsely accused, he didn't fight back. But in addition to that, if you're fighting back, that is doing evil, and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so, Peter is saying, look, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be righteous, follow the example of Christ and learn how to endure the trial of your faith without fighting back. And, and so he's going to continue this idea here. Verse 13 says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? And so he's asking a rhetorical question. It's like, you know, why, why would you fight back against someone who's putting you down for doing good. I mean, how can they really harm you? In the long run, in the big picture, if you're doing the right thing, God's going to bless and honor you. So why do you have to worry about fighting back for yourself? God's going to take care of that. And, um, and so it's like, humanly speaking, we feel that our reputation is being damaged, that we're being put down, and we've got to fight back and, and let people know where they're wrong and, and put them in their place. But it's like, wait a minute, who is it that will harm you if you're followers of that which is good? If you're doing the right thing and being accused for doing the right thing, at the end of the day, at the end of, of this world, they can't harm you. <clears throat> and then he continues the, this point in verse 14 by saying, But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So he's like, look, if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, you should be happy. Don't be afraid of their terror. Don't be troubled, because you know what the end result is going to be. Now, humanly speaking, this is 
difficult, but if we follow the example of Christ, then it becomes possible. And verse 15, then he gives us the next illustration of how we suffer for righteousness sake. The first illustration he gave was, look, here's Christ. He went through the, the judgment and the crucifixion and he suffered for righteousness sake. And he's left us an example to follow in his steps. The next illustration he gives is converted Christians who used to be unbelievers who are still who are married to husbands who have remained unbelievers and how they suffer for righteousness sake now he's going to give the next illustration of how believers suffer for righteousness sake and that starts here in verse 15 and we use this as a proof text to talk about how we need to know our faith but here's the context of what this verse is talking about. So verse 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we always use this verse to say, you know, we, we should be able to tell anybody why we believe what we believe. And that's true. I mean, the, that verse certainly is saying that. Um, here's the broader context of this passage. It's like, okay, what do you do when someone comes to you and asks you what you believe and you know what the truth is, you know what the biblical answer is, and you know when you give that answer, you're going to be persecuted for giving that answer. That's the context of what Peter's talking about. Because he's talking to first century Christians who to take the name of Christ, to profess the name of Christ, was to put your life on the line. And so he's saying, look, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you. He's not saying, you know, try to, um, you know, get around the question and give a political answer so they'll think that you believe the same thing that they believe. and and we all are headed in the same direction. He's like, no. With meekness and fear, give the reason for the hope that is in you. And verse 16 expands upon this idea. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So the context is, okay, you're asked, okay, do you really believe that the seventh day is the Sabbath? And you know that if you give the answer and you show from the Bible that the seventh day is the Sabbath, this is just an illustration, you know that if you do that, you're going to get locked up in prison. And are you going to give the reason for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear? Or are you going to say, well, you know, God um, works with everyone and, and for some people, you know, they worship on Sunday and that's their sincere day and, you know, I, I go on the Sabbath and, you know, that's good for me. Well, that's not really answering their question. The question is, is do you believe the seventh day is the true Sabbath? And the, the challenge, of course, is to give the answer with meekness and fear. You're not saying, yeah, I believe the seventh day is the Sabbath, and you're a heretic because you worship on Sunday. That's not, I mean, Peter clearly says, don't answer like that. Um, 
but you're going to answer in such a way that it convicts the hearer and they know that what you're saying is true and because of that you will be falsely accused and suffer for righteousness sake. So the only way we can do that is to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts because if you don't have the Lord in your heart, you're going to look for the human way out so that you won't be put on the line and your head on the chopping block. And a fine illustration of, of people, at least one example of people who gave an answer with meekness and fear even when their lives were on the line were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they said, you know what? Our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your image. Sorry. And um, that's the way God's last day people will also be. So that, that was interesting to me as, as I studied through 1 Peter chapter 3. It's like, you know, we always use 1 Peter 3.15 to say, you know, we should be able to give an answer for what we believe to anyone at any time. And that's true. But the context is when your life is on the line and you're going to suffer for righteousness sake God wants us to still speak the truth in meekness and fear and we may be facing a time like that in the very near future Lord willing um, and we know that someday that time will come and God is looking for modern-day Shadrachs Meshachs and Abednego's who will say, hey, you know what, our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your image. We know what the truth is. So, <clears throat> so again, we have a good conscience, verse 16, that even if they speak evil of us, they'll be ashamed because they're falsely accusing our good conversation in Christ. And it's interesting, if you look at Daniel chapter 6, for example, the, the advisors to the king of Persia said, the only way we're going to get Daniel is if we get him to be faithful to the law of his God. So if we put Daniel up against choosing to be faithful to his God versus the king, that's the only way we're going to get him, because we can't find anything else wrong with him. And so that is the type of people that God is looking for in this time. And again, verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And hopefully we've grown in our Christian experience that we, so that we aren't suffering for evil-doing. Um, and we talked about this earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it's, you know, if you suffer for doing the wrong thing, that's just par for the course, so to speak. That's expected. You messed up, you pay the price. You know, take that humbly and that's just expected. And yet human beings say, hey, I know I messed up, but how dare you put me down? You, you don't say that to me. I know I messed up, but don't you tell me that I messed up. I'll, t I'll show you a thing or two. I'm going to get back at you next time. Um, that, I mean, so human beings even struggle with that point, and the Bible is saying, hey, that's just par for the course. You messed up, you suffer for it, you move on, you learn your lesson, and by the grace of God, you do better next time. But what's acceptable with God is when you do the right thing and you get falsely accused and suffer for it and you take it patiently, that's acceptable with God. And if we can't even take it patiently when we mess up, and we're wanting to fight back. There's no way that when we're doing the right thing, we're going to take it patiently when we get um, accused or if we suffer for that. And yet scripture says it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing 
than for evil doing. And so hopefully we're not suffering for evil doing because then that would mean we need to repent and, and learn how to follow Christ. But we need to learn how to suffer for well doing. When you're teaching truth and you're giving the message in a clear and powerful way and people come along and say, oh, they don't know how to interpret the Bible. That's just, um, that's wrong. That's poor methodology. That's um, not according to the fundamentals or whatever. Um, that you suffer for well-doing and you keep preaching the truth, having a good conscience. And it's interesting here, you look at verse 17, it says, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing. Now, according to verse 17, what is the will of God? <clears throat> verse 17, the will of God is suffering for well-doing. Now, there's other, uh, other places in Scripture that give definitions of what the will of God is and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 is another definition for what the will of God is. So turn to 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 says for this is the will of God even your sanctification. Now in 1 Thessalonians, the will of God is your sanctification. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, the will of God is suffering for well-doing. So part of the sanctification process is learning how to suffer for well-doing and taking it patiently. So we talk about how sanctification is the work of a lifetime and that's true because every day of our life we can be fully surrendered to the Lord and yet every day can bring a new trial a new situation that challenges our faith and it's another opportunity for us to say am I going to trust in the Lord and am I going to take patiently this trial that I'm passing through and follow the example of Christ? That's the experience of sanctification. So the will of God is suffering for well-doing or the will of God is sanctification. Ralph, you had your hand up. If I understand right from verse 17, it's not saying that it's always God's will that we suffer for well-doing, but it may be His will. Sure. Right, it's not saying, and again, I'm not saying, and the scripture is clearly not saying that we should go out of our ways to create trials so that we can say, see, I'm, I'm sanctified, I'm suffering every day. Um, no, but sometimes standing up for the truth will bring the trial of your faith. So it's not an automatic thing every time, but it certainly will be the experience at some point. And of course, in, um, I believe it's First Timothy, of course, the, the verse that says, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if you've never been persecuted for your faith in your life, well, that could be, well, praise the Lord, the Lord's been good to me. Or that could be, well, maybe I haven't been living godly in Christ Jesus. 
to have lived 30, 40, 50 years and I've never had a trial of my faith, boy, I doubt that anyone sitting here could say they've never had a trial of their faith. If, if you ha haven't, I'd be surprised. But um, certainly those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, <clears throat> continuing on in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now here again is an illustration of suffering for well-doing. Christ suffered for sins. So here's Christ suffering. And what did he do wrong? He, was, he did nothing wrong. He was a just man. And so he suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. So he was just, and he was suffering for the unjust. How fair is that? I mean, Christ didn't do anything wrong, and all of us put him on the cross, and we don't have to suffer that death, and he suffered it. Is that fair? Absolutely not. But again, that shows you the love of God for us. The, the depths of his love that he would go through the most unfair suffering to save us and that's the example as well that look Christ he suffered for us so that we don't have to suffer in the way he did and yet if we follow him we will have an experience like him in that we will suffer for well-doing and it's not fair now we may, we're not going to die for the whole world like Jesus did. That was, only Jesus could do that. Yet, just as he suffered the, as a just man for the unjust, we will suffer for doing the right thing and it's not fair. If we live godly in Christ Jesus, if we follow the example of Christ. And it says, he did so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now that's an interesting phrase there. It says, he was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now, <clears throat> if you look at verse 21, for example, it says, the, speaking of, of Christ, um, it says, The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being, being made subject unto him. Now, what Peter is talking about here, and Paul talks about it also in Romans, is this. Christ was put to death, and it says he was put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened by the Spirit. And as we go down to verse 21, this quickening of the Spirit describes his resurrection. And now that he has been resurrected, he has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God. Now, when we look at Romans chapter 6, and we've studied this before, but Romans chapter 6 brings out this idea maybe even a little bit more clearly. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3, 
says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? So there you see following the example of Christ, following in his steps, how Christ was put to death in the flesh, that we were baptized into his death. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, do you see how Peter was talking about the resurrection in 1 Peter chapter 3? How Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he's been resurrected? Paul is saying, look, we're buried with Christ by baptism into death. And the next verses talk about how we're planted together in the likeness of his death. So Christ was put to death in the flesh, and that symbolizes us crucifying our flesh, putting to death our flesh, and baptism is a symbol of that. And then it says, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So. Christ gives us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. What's the example? When you do the right thing and you suffer for it, you take it patiently. What other example did he leave us? He was put to death in the flesh. And so we are planted together in the likeness of his death. And in verse 7 of chapter 6 of Romans, or I'm sorry, verse 6, it says that the old man is crucified with Christ. So. Peter is making reference to the fact that we're crucified with Christ, that the body of sin is destroyed, that the flesh is put away. And he made reference to that earlier in 1 Peter by talking about how we're born again of incorruptible seed because the flesh of man withers under trial. But if you're born again of incorruptible seed, that means the flesh has been put to death. And when the trials of life come, it won't be the flesh that will rise up and cause you to wither away spiritually. You'll be of incorruptible seed that was planted together in the likeness of Christ's death and has been raised to walk up in newness of life. So that's what Peter is talking about here in chapter 3 that Christ being put to death in the flesh but was quickened by the Spirit just as he was quickened by the Spirit. Romans 8 tells us that we no longer walk after the flesh but after the Spirit. So we can see the similarities between 1 Peter and the book of Romans. So that's verse 18 and verse 19 and 20 people sometimes get a little bit confused about what Peter is saying here so we'll talk about this here verse 19 and 20 says so Christ he was quickened by the spirit verse 19 by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now some people say, see, look, when Christ was crucified and went into the tomb, he went down into the earth and preached to the spirits that are in prison. See? The people who die actually go to some kind of purgatory, and that's what Christ was doing when he died. That's what people say. And so if you look, though, at what this is talking about, the word spirits 
here actually comes from the word um, that describes people who have breath. So it's talking about people who are living beings who have breath. That's what the word spirits mean and sometimes in the old vernacular, the way words were translated, it has sort of a different meaning today. But that's what in the original language it means people who have breath. Now who specifically are these people who have breath? Well, they're described as being in prison who sometimes were disobedience during the time of long suffering um, in the days of Noah, the long suffering of God in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. So who are these spirits in prison? It's the antediluvian world. So you just have to, to look at the context. And all Peter is saying is, is that, look, um, Christ gave the same opportunity to the people before the flood to be saved that the opportunity that we have now, they had that opportunity then. And it's described as the long suffering of God. So during the 120 years that Noah built an ark, that's described as the long suffering of God to try to save the people of that time. Those are the spirits who were in prison, so to speak, during that time. And it's interesting, of course, it says eight souls were saved by water. Um, so the, the terminology there is interesting. It's like, you know, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. And these people are described as souls. And it's a similar language to saying spirits in the previous verse or earlier in the verse. Um, people who have breath, spirits or souls. And eight souls or eight people, Noah and his wife, and their three sons and wives were the ones who were saved in the ark. And he uses that as an illustration. So it's not too complicated. He's simply using that as an illustration. In verse 21, he says, The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So it's kind of interesting. It's like the experience of the ark and the flood and those who went into the ark is... is a figure, it's an illustration, an allegory of what baptism is like for us. And it's interesting, he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And if you um, translate that phrase, not putting away the filth of the flesh, that literally means um, the bodily uncleanness. That's what the verse literally means. And so what saves us is not, <clears throat> it's not that the water cleans the dirt of our body, so to speak. It's that it gives us a good conscience toward God. Baptism is symbolic of being put to death in the flesh but raised up to walk in newness of life. We saw that in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we are buried together with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should be raised to walk in newness of life. So baptism isn't just, and Peter's making the obvious point, look, when you go into the bapt baptistry to get baptized, it's not the outward cleaning of your 
the filthiness of your flesh, the bodily uncleanness. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about being raised up to walk in newness of life with Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes. So you can go into the baptistry, and unfortunately this happens sometimes. People are still living the old life of sin, They're, and they weren't taught the biblical truths about giving up smoking or drinking or things like that. And so they go into the baptistry, and they come up out of the, out of the water, and they're still the same person. So they might be, their, their skin might have got cleaned up, but their heart didn't get changed. And so that's what Peter is talking about. And verse 22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now this is interesting. Anytime in scripture that Jesus is described as being on the right hand of God is a significant point because the rest of Scripture gives us an idea of what Jesus is doing on the right hand of God. Now we're, we're towards the end of our study, so I'm just going to do a, some rapid-fire verses to make you think about what Jesus is doing on the right hand of God. Hebrews 8.1 tells us that Jesus is our high priest seated on the right hand of God. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 1 through 4 tell us that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, seated on the right hand of God, helping us to run with patience the race set before us. And as our high priest seated on the right hand of God, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin and helps us to overcome sin because he was tempted in the same way that we were. And because of that, that helps us to run the race that he ran before us. We run so with patience. And because he's seated on the right hand of God, 1 Peter 3.22 says, angels and authorities and powers are made subject unto him. So that means that when you are tempted, Jesus is seated on the right hand of God and any power in heaven and earth is subject to the power of Christ. He's your high priest. He's the author and finisher of your faith, sitting on the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are made subject to him. All you have to do then, Hebrews 4.15, come boldly to the throne of grace because Jesus is on the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are made subject unto him. You may say, there is no way that I can pass through this trial in my life. Jesus was God, so he could go through the cross. I can't handle this, but yet, Scripture says he's seated on the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are made subject unto him. If you have faith in him, he will help you through that trial. He's the example you can follow in his steps because angels, authorities, and powers are made subject unto him. He's seated on the right hand of God. He has the power of God. That's who Jesus is. And so that's the thought that I will leave you with as we pick up um, next week when we start First Peter chapter 4 verse 1. First Peter 4 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So chapter 4 verse 1 sort of summarizes everything Peter has been saying to get to that point. And hey, Christ suffered for us in the flesh and we can arm ourselves with the same mind because angels, authorities, and powers are subject to him. He's our high priest and the author and finisher of our faith seated on the right hand of God. So may that give us encouragement and hope and faith for this coming week. Thank you, everyone.